It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. And we have a rare opportunity now to speak with a visiting world leader who is in New York for the UN General Assembly and the Climate Action Summit. It's the president of Ireland, Michael Higgins. He's also been a published poet and a human rights activist. He's got some strong feelings on migration, as all you Irish listeners know the history of that in the United States and elsewhere, on climate protection, on multilateralism versus your country first, insert country name here, nationalism, and on Brexit. And you might have even seen the photo from the climate summit that's gone viral on social media of Higgins, who's five foot three, standing next to Jason Momoa, star of Aquaman, who's six foot three. That's a combined 11 and a half feet, though very unevenly distributed, of climate concern. So, President Higgins, it's an honor. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to speak to you again, Brian. Yes. And first, who thought of a photo of you and Aquaman would be the hit visual of the Climate Action Summit? What brought the two of you together? Well, we were just, but we both had been speaking at the small island uh, developing com- uh, countries meeting, which was presenting, if you like, a, an update on where we are on what was committed to deal with those who are, after all, at the front line of the effects of climate change. So there had been a, a number of speakers, including the Secretary General of the United Nations, and they, I had spoken and the very final speaker had, was, in fact, actually himself, who was so impressive, and uh, and he was wonderful. I think that he, 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 you, there was a great authenticity in, in, in what he said. And um, then as we were all packing up to go on to our next meeting, somebody took a photograph, as they do, and there it is. But it was a real privilege to meet him. It's been a very, very good meeting. To, I think that part of it that has been most moving has been meeting with the people who are at the front line, the Pacific Islanders, where it's rising sea level, will wipe out, not only endanger lives, but wipe out whole communities, whole heritage. People will be leaving islands and so forth. And then I think as well, it, the fact you, you have to be very, very clear about what one is doing. This, you know, people respond to disasters that may happen once, but these are areas of recurring disasters where you're threatened again and again. So uh, I, I thought that those meetings, those two big meetings that we had, the Samoa, the Samoa pathway, which was about responding, if you like, just checking where do we stand. And what I think that people are very concerned with was that being a, a, living in an island, dealing with island life, has great advantages, but it has challenges that are always there. Then some of these islands, in fact, differ in relation to their capacity. There's some are poorer than others. And then you get natural disasters. But then if, in fact, actually due to the, they produce the least, they make the least contribution to the dilemma that we're in now. They are the least contributors, if you like, to the yes. changes that are and, and but they are in the they are, in fact, suffering the most. You, you mentioned, as prime examples here, the uh, some of those Pacific islands about as far from Ireland geographically as you can get. Yes. And for Ireland in a northern and pretty cold part of the world, yes. would a warmer Earth be bad? I think that changing the Gulf Stream, for example, would in fact 
very much affect Irish fishing. But I think that where we're already getting in Ireland are totally unpredictable seasons which are impacting on farming, on fodder, for example. Um, margins are very tight in relation to agricultural production in Ireland. And it's very, very clear that farm families, the number, are decreasing all the time. I think at the moment there are about 47,000. Farming has, in fact, changed. But retaining farm families, retaining rural Ireland, uh, the life of rural Ireland, and so on, they are already being impacted by, by weather. The government had to come to the assistance of those, for example, who were short fodder for their cattle practically two or three times in the last five years. So no one, nobody, nobody is unaffected by what is happening. And that's what gives great urgency to where we are now. I I actually have been speaking in some of my speeches. You know, I began at New York University. I've been at the UN. I've been at Fordham University. I'm going to the City Library today. I was up in Mineola. But the one thing that strikes me about it is how three things come together. You have climate change sustainability. That was debated at the UN in 2015. But also you've got growing and deepening inequality. So therefore, that remains there. And then you also, with the huge expansion of global population, that people have to be fed. And then you have a crisis in institutions. So you have a number of crises, as it were, all happening together. So it isn't sufficient anymore, really, to be just concerned on the environment on its own. I really think that those who are in fact are concerned at that issue have to combine with those who are interested in unemployment, poverty, exclusion. And then you come on to the next question about it is that institutions have to re-establish their trust with the people on the street. Because if you don't, you allow a vacuum to emerge, which will be filled by really hate speech and by very, very irresponsible people who, in fact, as it were, operating like predators those who were affected. My guest, if you're just tuning in, is the President of Ireland, Michael Higgins. And for those of you who are Irish or Irish-American or anyone else, we can take a few phone calls for him at 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. The President in town for the UN General Assembly and um, the... uh, Climate Action Summit, and even going to places like Fordham University and Mineola, as he just said, 212-433-9692. And Mr. President, just to clarify briefly for our listeners, President of Ireland is not like President of the United States. Ireland has a parliament with a prime minister who, I think it's accurate to say, functions as head of state. So what's your role in government and politics there? Yes, the President of Ireland is, is the, one of the great advantages of my position is you're directly elected by the people. I'm not elected from the Parliament or the Senate. I'm directly elected by the people. So that direct mandate is a very, very important source of independence in the presidency itself. The president is not an executive president, so therefore what you have in a way that our, what you would call your our parliament, which you would consider the all and Janet and so forth, they are responsible for policy. They legislate, as it were. So I don't speak on the detail of legislation, but I speak on the big issues. I speak on, for example, the, what, what, the way it happens is that I meet the, the Taoiseach, Prime Minister, um, about every six weeks. He fills me in. We, these are confidential. We discuss every 
he just maybe two or three hours he talks about the meetings the legislative program what's coming up his meetings in Europe elsewhere meanwhile I have been out and around the country as well and I tell him and feel like what where I see things are happening you know what are the concerns and how these can be communicated and uh, and that's how it works and that's in our constitution. It's in Article 28 of our constitution. The president shall be kept informed of matters national and international. And then there's something else to it as well. You see, I myself have experience. Really, every elected office in Ireland. I was a mayor. I was a councillor. I was a, t- a chapter a member of parliament. I was a senator. I was a member of the cabinet. So I know how the system works. So it does work. But what it means is that I concentrate, as it were, on the issues that go beyond an electoral period. Remember, the President of Ireland is elected for seven years. Mm. You could expect that you will be dealing with more than one government. So my, so. My, my, my purpose is, in fact, is to take the Constitution and protect it and see that it's influenced and give expression to what are, if you like, the non-immediate but recurring and structural issues that are facing us and well. our allies and friends in Europe and abroad and in the United States. In fact, many my training, by the way, you know, Brian, I think when we last spoke, was as a sociologist, and my interest has been very much in the sociology of migration. Yes. So that's why, in fact, when I, I Mineola was very, very, very moving for me, because there I was meeting families that had been involved in firefighters, the police services, all of these areas, families that really represent the whole long evolution. That's of great. And I want to get to migration with you and to Brexit with you, but let me take a phone call that might actually lead us into some of that. Matt in Lindhurst, you're on WNYC with Michael Higgins, President of Ireland. Hi, Mike. Hi, Matt. Hi, hi how are you? Uh, hi, President Higgins. Uh, th- this is more anecdotal than anything, uh, but uh, in any event, um, I grew up in uh, Bayside, Queens, and uh, I'm Italian-American, but... Um, my neighborhood was split pretty much right down the middle. It was about 50% Irish Catholic and 50% Italian Catholic. So I grew up with m- many of my friends. A lot of Jews in uh, side, es- too. Essentially, my extended siblings um, and uh, were, were Irish. They were first-generation Irish. And I, I have to tell you, many, many, many years later, uh, I was actually fl- uh, uh, flying in Europe. I was in Milan. I had an extended layover. I, I was jet lagged, and I'm just, you know, zombieing around the airport. And at one point, when uh, my plane was boarding, uh, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And, and, and you know, because I wasn't very conscious at that moment, I just kind of, you know, kind of looked around, and I noticed that so- the, the couple behind me was speaking Gaelic. And and that was a very, very intense moment. It brought all that love and all that friendship and all those families yeah. and all these great people I knew back that's, to me. That's so, a, and, Matt, I'm going to leave it there for time. I really appreciate it. I speak Irish every day. <laughs> and uh, Bayside, where I also grew up, uh, a lot of Jews there as well, a lot of um, Asian Americans these days. I know you have strong feelings, Mr. President, on migration policy, and maybe you saw the news that the U.S. will reduce refugee admissions next year to just 18,000. It was in six figures, that is, in the hundreds of thousands a year under President Reagan, about 80,000 at the end of the Obama administration with the Syrian crisis underway. 
What do you think of the state of the world's refugee situation and the global response to it today? Well, first of all, I think just to deal with one part of it, we have clear legal international obligations that have to be fulfilled by the signatories to the UN Charter. And I think that has to be defended. That's very, very, very important. But what that is being threatened by, I think, is the assault on multilateralism as a concept as well. But if we take what is happening now, there are about, I think, 71 million people who are, last year was the, the official figure given globally. I think about 62 million of that are actually within countries who are displaced. And I think that in the Irish case, this is one of the points we Irish must never, ever forget, is we, between 1815 and 1845, before our Great Famine, one million people had left Ireland for the United States. And they were people because there was a rumour that the country was finished after the Act of Union in 1800. And they did quite well. They were able to pay their fare. And then after 1847 and the famine, another million and a half left. And they, they are people who are desperate. And they die, some of them on the boats, crossing some die, waiting to come ashore, and so on. But it is interesting that that huge tsunami of the Irish has meant that by 1901, of all the people born on the island of Ireland, more than half were living abroad. So we have it, a consciousness about migration. Today, I think really one in six, one in, I think about 17% of the people in Ireland were not born in Ireland. The flow is coming the other way. And in all the countries in Europe and the countries that I would be most familiar with really around the world, you wouldn't be able to run your health services. You wouldn't be able to do the basic things the citizens need if it hadn't for the people who come and help. And you know, the man I listened to, which was very, very interesting, talking about the Irish and Italian communities. In the end, what they are, are neighbours. And really, I think those who are... I think, remember, I said very, very clearly, it is incredibly irresponsible of people who are using migrants as scapegoats. I did some work on this myself. And when you look at the figures in our neighbour, for example, the United Kingdom... All the empirical evidence is there is that incoming migrants have not dislodged jobs from the lowest categories in, uh, in, 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 in the United Kingdom. Then let me jump in, Mr. President, for time and ask how sure. you explain the backlash. Because Trump supporters in the U.S., Brexit supporters in the U.K., nationalist populists in many countries, and I don't know if also in Ireland, as, as you were just saying, um, yeah. so many of your, uh, so, such a large percentage of the population is migrants to Ireland compared to the past. But some of the, um, the, the, the native-born in those countries and this country feel overwhelmed and threatened by the degree of migration patterns today. Well, you know, much of this business about feeling overwhelmed, I, when I listened to this first during our European elections, there were people in rural France who didn't actually ever have seen a migrant since Napoleon's time, and they were talking about being overwhelmed, even though they couldn't remember a migrant coming even in their grandparents' time. We have to be awfully careful about this language. It is not based on fact between of the world global GDP last year, between 10 and 12 percent, depending how you measure it, was provided by migrants. As well as that, all of this, remember, we are all migrants in time. And we is really just we are, how we treat the other. Why are people moving? 
when they are asked a question, remember, why, what would you really like to do? They say, I would like to go home. And it is the frontline states just over the border from where they've come. They are, in fact, taking people in. They're making huge sacrifices. And they should be helped by the global community. But remember, this is the point about it, is because I remember I studied in the United States, I taught in the United States, and I know the contribution that migrants are making. It is actually a very, very foolish, dangerous nonsense, and it is not ever based on fact. It is based, if you like, on uh, really you. It's being used by people very often to try and invent a rhetoric for some kind of exploitation of fear. No, I think that look the big. I, I, I think the big heart of the United States is the thing that matters. When I came at 25 years of age and I was down in the Midwest and all the rest of it, I know the decent, open heart of the United States, and I see all of this as just a little aberration. So if you're going to change the minds of those people who feel threatened or engaging in the backlash here and there... The best thing to do is to produce facts. I think that's very... You must take their... You see, if they have been exploited and whipped up and so forth, you must deal deal with it by presenting the facts as they are. You must then do so with patience. Remember, there was was always movement in different communities. You know, we are Irish in many cases, and a person coming, if you were coming to, to, to visit a house, they would say, what's the news? It was as if people were continually interested in difference, experiencing stories and so forth. For example, what you've had in most of the cases is a kind of circular migration where people who have been away share their experience. They have a great, great contribution to make. I think that it is regarding it as a problem. In what sense, in a way, if people say that if they feel, in fact, they've been encouraged to feel threatened in the circumstances that they're in by people that they have never met. And equally, it is so that where people have come to understand each other, they respect each other's differences, people work out something that is even bigger and better than the two people combined. These different strands of culture are making a tapestry. And that was, in fact, actually all when people who were writers and others and so on, that is what they, when you come to New York, it is the texture of the place through its difference that is one of its greatest riches. Jerry in the Bronx, you're on WNYC with the president of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Brian. It's my pleasure and honor to speak with the President of Ireland, and indeed with you, Brian. Thank you. My, my question, Mr. President, is this. Do you foresee any possibility of a united Ireland due to the situation with Brexit? I think that what is happening now, in fact, has probably brought the discourse about all of this uh, closer to us. But uh, the, the, the tragedy of the, the Brexit thing is, is that we have, we're after 20 years of a carefully crafted peace process, which has brought benefit to both people all over the island. Uh, we were getting on with things. We have a very, very good relationship with, uh, with our neighbours. I think the tragedy of Brexit is, is our, where we will take a very big hit is in relation to agriculture and particularly that kind of employment that is in agribusiness, which is heavily regionalised. But I also think that, frankly, that the decision that was taken in the United Kingdom, which they took, I think that that is... Uh, 
that is going to have a, a very negative effect on, on their own economy. We are actually in the middle of, of nobody, in fact, knows what precisely is being put on the table uh, at the present time. But certainly one of the things that will arise but when it is that it, it, that what you suggest has in fact probably been brought forward. But it must be done with respect and with a respect, I think, for both different narratives of history, but also it should be, I think, emphasized in every time it is discussed is the importance of consensus, the importance of bringing people together. So can I jump in? And people a better future than, in fact, a dangerous past. How do you bring people together in a Brexit scenario? Because as some of our U.S. listeners may not know, one of the biggest sticking points is what becomes of the currently open trade and open border between Northern Ireland, which is still British territory, and the rest of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland that you're president of. Can you explain to our American no, listeners? First of all, I'm not president of the rest of Ireland. It's a good Friday agreement. My title is president of Ireland. So that would include Northern Ireland. Indeed. I apologize. Oh, so not at all. No, even, no, even, even more to the point then. If they go through with Brexit, what is there any scenario for the redivision that would take place? I think at this stage, I, it wouldn't be helpful for me to come, to be quite frank with you. My hope, to be honest with you, is that the, in the end of the day, and given my own background in it all, isn't what is important is that that it should happen with the least loss of jobs. As there are figures of losses of jobs that range between 80,000 and 200,000. There are loss of jobs in the, in the United Kingdom. I think it is time we realized very, very, very much that we have to turn the clock back to that time when, gov- when the state was used as an investment state, when you addressed issues of public housing, of jobs, and so on. You know, Brian, as an I began my conversation with you. I said, you know, I'd, I'm not happy always in discussing, let us say, climate change or the uh, whole question of sustainability in isolation. It makes me very sad that we have, in fact, actually made such little progress in lifting people out of poverty, that we've made it so difficult for people to acquire an education, decent housing, as well as that. The gross figures when you say that the economy is very strong or this, whatever. The question you must always ask yourself, are you talking about the people's economy? And what has happened? I've spoken about this in a number of this, when I was speaking before. The, the fact is you must really test yourself. We have to deal with issues where, in fact, our very planet has been put in danger by an economic model that has not, that has deepened inequality, that has threatened institutions, that is eroding multilateralism. And then as well as that, we, haven't, we have people on the streets, we have people who feel cut off. And these people who are cut off and left in a kind of a vacuum are available for exploitation for those who are irresponsibly using language that we thought had been gone forever, language of hate and division. We must just gird our lines and decide, look, we're going to get to a new place. And getting to a new place will mean, in fact, doing a lot of listening. It will do a lot of understanding, a lot of putting ourselves in the shoes of the other, and even sometimes forgiving. We have time for one more phone call, and 
since we're getting a call from Dublin, and that doesn't happen here every day. Ellen in Dublin, you're on WNYC with the President of Ireland. Hello, Ellen. Hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. I normally live in Manhattan, but I am in Dublin, and I understand that President Higgins is a big supporter of Irish neutrality. So I'm wondering why the Irish government is allowing U.S. military flights to go through Shannon Airport in violation of that neutrality, bringing troops to the Middle East to the wars that cause the refugees he's been talking about. And also about the case of two U.S. veterans who did a peaceful protest against those flights in March, and they've been held in Ireland ever since without their passports on very minor charges for a peaceful protest. Yes, I think that your caller will know that these are issues upon when I was a member of Parliament. I spoke and acted very often. I do think uh, I do I do think we should try that the issue of the two people with whose case I, I am familiar it's a matter for government, and I will draw the attention of government to it. But you will appreciate that as president, I cannot interfere in the executive decisions of government. Mr. President, it's been an honor to have you back on the show. <laughs> And you have created great interest and a lot of positive response among our listeners. So we really appreciate you giving us a few minutes while you're in New York. Thank you very, very much. No, my, my whole message, we must get to a new place, a new paradigm to replace what is failing. And thank you for having me. Mili Burbanacht, as we say in Gaelic. Thank you so much. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. New developments, even this morning in the impeachment inquiry. We're going to go to a Washington Post correspondent and someone from Lawfare right after this.